Yes, indeed, we do need a revolution, and we're going to have it one conversation at a time right here on an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Thank you for joining me here today. I am so excited about today's uh, show. Um, I already knew that the wonderful uh, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler was coming on to talk about the Vaxxed Unvaxxed study, but then when I logged in, who is surprising me here, but his co-author, Dr. Paul Thomas, is here in the house, well, sort of in the Zoom house. Um, So I'll be introducing them in just a second. It's going to be a fantastic show. Um, I wanted to, you know, kind of start off giving you a little bit of information, you know, especially here in Washington state, things have just gone nuts. Um, You know, I don't, I don't quite understand how anybody cannot yet see it when the absurdity level has reached such heights in what we're being told, Um, except for that, if you are only following mainstream news, Como, Cairo, CNN, you are being steeped in fear. And so, you know, I encourage you, if you're hearing this, um, you know, find other alternative news sources, um, do some research and, and sort of see what's going on. There's some great information out there. If you just step a little bit to one side or the other and, 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 and get some facts. You can start at informedchoicewa.org. Um, we try to give you as much as we can what you need to know to begin exploring the information to make informed decisions. I don't want you guys to take anything I say as truth, fact, whatever. I'm here to open minds, present information, and encourage you to research so you can make an informed life. And it has never been more important for us to do our own due diligence and medical due diligence. Um, the news is completely just saturated with vaccines are coming. They're very effective. You know, they're safe. Well, not so fast. So I'm going to give you three key points here to keep in mind. Um, you can go to the website. You'll find one of the posts is fast facts, COVID-19 vaccine concerns. Um, I hear somebody screaming in the background. I wonder where that's coming from. Jack? That's not me. <laughs> not you, okay. Um, anyway, there's three key things to keep in mind as, as you're being faced with the, these new coming um, vaccines. Number one, they are all liability free. They are all uh, protected underneath the PREP Act, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. Not only are the vaccine makers shielded from liability, but anybody who administers them um, are shielded, as well as um, the the public health people who decide to mandate them and, and compel them. And nobody is responsible for injury or death. You alone buyer beware. So just keep that in mind. Nobody's responsible. And human beings just do not behave well in the absence of responsibility. If these people are telling us, oh, you're going to have to get it. Don't be hesitant. It's going to be safe and effective. It's going to be great. You need it. Well, they're not responsible if you're injured or your child is injured. So just keep that in mind. Okay. Not essential. We have said over and over on this program where, you know, a great place to go is healthyimmunitynow.org healthyimmunitynow.org, there you will find all of the current existing, uh, most of them non-patentable treatment protocols, all of the science, and these range from nutrient only to nutrient and drug um, protocols being done in family practices, those being done in top ICUs in the 
in the United States, all hyperlinked to science and case studies. It's all there. There's no need to fear. Treatments exist. We also have a problem with PCR testing, where they're saying something that is positive is a case, and that's not true. So, you know, search for PCR test on our website, noodle down, read the science of those tests. They're not being used properly. And the third thing, so we've got liability free, they're not essential, they're not needed, and questionable. Um, and, you know, we just won't know. These are brand new, especially the two leaders, mRNA vaccines, type of vaccine never used in humans before. It is, we don't know what the long-term um, outcomes are gonna be. Uh, so do your homework. There's a lot of stuff there. We have links to the clinical trial resu results there um, from Moderna, thanks to ICANN, the uh, Informed Consent Action Network, uh, filed uh, a FOIA request to get the full data so anyway, explore. And with that, I, that's my little uh, nagging for the day. Do your dil diligence, do your homework, um, kind of turn off the mainstream news and find out what everybody else is talking about here. Um, so we're going to move on to our main event today. I am so very excited to tell you guys about the study that parents have been asking for for decades. The CDC steadfastly has refused to do a vaccinated versus totally not vaccinated comparison of children or people in this country. Um, that is the only way that you can see health outcomes, whether or not vaccination improves children's health or does not improve children's health. There's no other way to do it. You can't fudge it. They've tried to fudge it. They've given us no data and that's how they get away with um, adding, um, just continuing to pile on the vaccine schedule and giving us um, what Dr. James Lyons-Weiler likes to coin as vaccine injury denial, denialism. And that's uh, what we have going on. So it's finally here though, last year, uh, Dr. James Lines-Weiler and Dr. Paul Thomas got together. Dr. Paul Thomas has a pediatric practice in Oregon, and he is a beautiful soul. He's wise. He's thoughtful. He gives each and every one of his patients individualized treatment and gives them or their parents and guardian the opportunity to give fully informed consent by giving them enough information. He individualizes his care to each child so that if their genetic or health or family history may be a concern, he brings the, all of that into the picture so that that child is uniquely treated. And because of that, the children born into his practice uh, range from completely non-vaccinated to almost fully vaccinated. I don't think anybody, any of them fully did the CDC schedule, but you know, there might be some in there with full and everything in between. And so it created this beautiful set of data that could be looked at to see, you know, what happens when you get no vaccines, when you get a few vaccines, and when you get a lot of vaccines. And now, after a lot of fundraising at the grassroots level, thank you so much to Informed Choice Washington members, a lot of whom did, uh, donated to a fundraiser to go to this, and people all across the United States, and I think across the world, help fund this study. And phase one is here at last. 
So uh, with, uh, with that said, I'm going to be bringing on here Dr. James Lyons-Weiler and uh, Dr. Thomas. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for coming on an Informed Life Radio. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Hey. So um, I think I'm going to start with, with uh, Dr. James. I'm going to call him Jack because you know, he goes by Jack. Um, so Dr. Jack, could you explain to us, give us the title of the, um, of the study and, and give us the basics of how it was done? The, t- I, the title of the study, um, geez, that's a strange question because, okay, you caught me off guard. I didn't I, really memorize it. Oh, here, I'll pull I, it up a lot for going you. On. I, I've got it because, it, you know, when you're looking, you're not fine. You, when you search for it, you're not searching for vaxxed versus unvaxxed. It's called Relative Incidence of Office Visits and Cumulative Rates of Build Diagnoses Along the Axis of Vaccination. So that's quite a mouthful. Yeah, it I is. And yeah. You wrote that. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's Dr. called Paul. it vaxxed unvaxxed. <laughs> yeah. So 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 it is a mouthful, and the and the benefit of having that title is that it shows that there's a um, it, the, the, it's a methodological paper. I'm a method. I am an expert methodologist when it comes to uh, analyzing data the way that it really should be analyzed. Uh, my 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 strength is in algorithms. My strength is in finding ways to express, uh, well, to design analysis, to be able to, to detect a signal if it is in fact present and to not detect a signal if it is in fact absent. And so this, the, the reason why we agreed to that title was because it puts the spotlight on how we did it, which is, a, which is a, an extremely unique new way of looking at it. In the past, uh, the vaccinated versus unvaccinated studies that were done were flawed in many ways. Um, because they weren't true vaccinated versus unvaccinated, first of all. They, they Oftentimes they simply looked at the effects of one vaccine in addition to however many other vaccines children were getting. Uh, and second, they also looked at um, odds ratios or relative risks using just the incidence of diagnosis. So if you're counting up the number of cases, say, of asthma, the number of cases of allergic rhinitis, it's a valid statistical approach to look at the diagnosis, but it doesn't look at the full disease burden, right? It doesn't look at the full range of, wow, we've got, how sick are these people with these diagnoses? Oh, they were they given one diagnosis of asthma or did they come back to the office 10, 12, 20 times for, you know, increased severity or whatever? This medicine's not working. Give me something else. And so... What I found out and what we found out in the course of doing the study was I had stumbled into, by design, uh, a more powerful statistic to do retrospective vaccinated versus unvaccinated studies or any kind of study, a dr- including drug studies, looking for using observational studies, looking for adverse events from the drug or the vaccine. Using the incidence of office visits, we have a measure that has a higher dynamic range. It's more sensitive to differences between the groups. Uh, and it's more statistically powerful, which means that if there's a signal present, it is more likely to find it than to miss it, if, right? Because if you're trying to detect a signal that's truly there, you're either going to find it or you're going to miss it. So this maximizes or at least improves. Um, I'm not sure if it's the most 
uniformly most powerful test, but is it maximize it increases the ability of us to detect a signal of adverse events if it is in fact there. And I therefore think of this study as a landmark historic advance forward. It is a quantum leap forward in being able to detect adverse events in pharmaceutical products. Fantastic. I, I hope people study it and 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 try to duplicate it, right? That's the that's the key there, right? It isn't the final word by any means. That's right. Yeah. We, we, we have more data at Paul's practice that we, we, we may get into. There's many, many more patients that weren't included because they're excluded due to uh, the fact that they, they weren't, uh, you know, necessarily born into the practice. But yes, we absolutely, I'm a scientist. We absolutely need to, to see the study uh, replicated, reproduced. We need to see methods like mine, if not mine. The, the, that specific method could introduce a whole new branch. This, this is how analytics work. Analytics work and mathematics work and statistics work by someone, someone has a good idea on how to do something that's smarter, better. And then the rest of mathematicians and statisticians glom onto it and they say, oh, oh, the trees uh, sprouted a new branch. Let's go. And then they take, <laughs> they take their creative minds and their analytic minds and they say, well, you know, you could do it this way. You could do that way. So this really honestly could lead to a whole new branch of analytics in clinical research. And I hope that my colleagues in biostatistics and in clinical analytic research who design studies and conduct studies. Uh, at universities and in pharmaceutical companies take heed on this. We need to know why 54% of the American population has chronic illnesses, it's lifelong chronic illnesses that require pharmaceutical or are thought to require pharmaceutical interventions when it wasn't always this way by any means. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. rates of all of these chronic illnesses, diabetes being one of the gravest concerns, it has a huge morbidity risk. Um, we really need to look at what we're doing as a scientific community to the data when we design such studies. And so I, you know, if there's a flaw in my analysis, I want to know. I'm mm -hmm. an objective scientist. If I goofed some way, I want to know. I'd like to improve it. And uh, that should occur through rational discourse, yes. where if, if there's any problem with the study, then somebody should write to the journal and submit a letter to the editor. The editor should publish it. And then I should, uh, I and Paul should be able to respond in kind. So we as a community can learn as opposed to this very unhealthy practice of targeting papers and studies that you don't like simply because they show something wrong with vaccines to try to work to get it retracted. We know that they're going to try to target this. Yeah. We already we did we went into it knowing they were going to try to target it for retraction. It's 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 the MO and I say they, I mean a certain doctor here in Michigan. I'm in Michigan right now. Happy Thanksgiving everyone. It's the day after. I hope you're all full of turkey or whatever. But <laughs> there's a certain doctor here in Michigan who will re remain nameless. I don't read his blogs. Everyone sends me all of the articles that he writes. He goes around and systematically targets every single study ever published to try to, he's burning books. Every study that's ever showed anything wrong with vaccines, he's tried to have, he and his colleagues have tried to have retracted. And that's not science, that's bias. He's trying to inject a bias in the scientific literature so mm -hmm. meta-analyses cannot find those studies mm -hmm. with the significant odd ratios. And there's, they, they, they tried to have our aluminum study that Dr. Paul and I and Elaine Shalee and the Grant McFarland study uh, uh, published, tried to have that retracted. And we soundly won that argument with the editor. 
in yeah. chief. We, we beat that back handily. So I welcome any challenge. If you want to have science in society, encourage open debate, encourage discussion, encourage skepticism. Don't sit there and think that just because the CDC or somebody funded by the CDC has published a study that is any more valid than someone like me or Dr. Paul or any independent scientist out there, Brian Hooker or anyone else, who might be just objective enough to not deny that they found something and hide it. Exactly. You're, you're, you're bringing back you and Dr. Paul and Dr. Hooker and so many others are bringing back ethics into science and, and starting a whole new model. You know, I love that. I'm going to turn over to Dr. Paul now. Um, I'd love for you to step back a little bit. Could you talk, you know, you're new to listeners here and because you surprised me with your visit, I didn't have a great bio to introduce you with. Can you kind of explain to people like, you know, you, you weren't always this way. I believe you said when you entered medicine, you believe everything good about vaccines and yeah, Absolutely. So I'm Dartmouth trained, board certified pediatrician, finished my all my residency in California, started teaching residents and medical students in Portland, Oregon, back in the late 80s, and um, was really in the teaching mode for many years and then went into private practice and a group practice with four other pediatricians, where I was doing what pediatricians do. I mean, we really believe, and most still believe that vaccines is the single most important thing we can do. So it's a real sort of mind warp to then think about, well, maybe there's a problem with what we're doing. And I think that's part of the reason it's so hard for mainstream pediatricians to, it's almost like a paradigm shift, right? Because mm -hmm. they've been, we were indoctrinated by what I call throwaway journals that would hit your desk daily. Vaccines are safe and effective. Vaccines are safe and effective. In fact, you're still hearing that on the news today, even now being referred to the COVID, which is a marketing slogan. There is no safe vaccine. They are only relatively safe or rather dangerous or extremely dangerous, but a safe, completely 100% safe vaccine doesn't exist. So it's a, it's a product you're injecting. It just doesn't happen or in the case of something oral. So we know they're not safe. How effective they are? Well, it varies. That's, that's for a different topic. But what happened in my career was I started seeing this regression into autism, escalation of chronic disease, ADD, ADHD, asthma, diabetes, all the eczema, the allergies, autoimmune conditions, everything exploding. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? And then there was books like Jack's book on the environmental causes of autism, which I'm sure you've covered on another show, but it brilliant. He goes in looking for basically, I think, to prove that vaccines are fine. It's environmental comes out of that research, realizing, oh my gosh, vaccines are a big piece of the environmental stress. You're injecting it and you're bypassing the normal barriers for the body's ability to get rid of toxins. So I saw this in my practice. I've written about in my book, The Vaccine Friendly Plan, which came out in 2016. I was seeing, I saw four kids regress into autism after being completely normal at age one. By age two, they were nonverbal, nobody home, severe autistic. And this was something I was starting to hear. And if you work in a practice like mine, we hear it every week. A new family comes in telling us the story of how they had a perfectly normal child who was starting to speak in many cases or was speaking well. And then at, either immediately after vaccines or somewhat sometime later, they just lost their kid. The lights went out. They started, um, lost their speech, lost their eye contact. They're spinning. They seem to be in pain. Um, you know, it's a tragic story. And when you hear that as a pediatrician, 
and I'm being told and I'm reading in my literature, well, we just don't know. Uh, we're sorry, that's too bad. <laughs> There's a one and a half year waiting list to get in to see the authorities. And it just broke my heart. And I could not just accept that that's just okay. This is just normal. Because it didn't exist when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Flat out didn't exist. I mean, mm -hmm. it really didn't. Statistically, it did. But, you know, one in 10,000 if. Oh, so. right. Yeah. What, Dr. Thomas, when, when you and I were kids and Jack, you know, we didn't know anybody who had a, a diagnosis of ADD, ADHD. Yeah. Um, the, the EpiPen did not exist. I mean, right. you know, you don't think it, it's just epinephrine. I mean, it could have been invented by then, but it wasn't needed. So, you know, right. there wasn't a product. Yep. All of these things we see today that are just common did yeah. not exist when we were children. And, yeah. you know, we're quickly losing that, that cultural memory because of the normalization of yeah. illness. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in 2007, when the fourth case happened to me, it was November, I walk into a, a normal two-year-old well visit and that little fellow, he's just shaking his head, nobody's home and it just broke my heart. And I went to my partners and I said, I can't do business as usual when it comes to vaccines. I was already hot on the trail of we've got problems. We're injecting aluminum, we're injecting mercury, we're injecting formaldehyde and aborted fetal cells. And a lot of information was out there, but you really had to know to go look for it, which is why I think a lot of people just don't know, even to this day. Now there's hundreds, if not thousands of articles that speak to the toxicity of things like aluminum and mercury and too many vaccines too soon, immune vac activation, et cetera. So where's the data? As you guys started out saying, there just was no data comparing vaxxed to unvaxxed. I started, uh, my partners at my last practice in 2007 basically said, no, we, we're not gonna be able to work together. You, it's unethical not to do all the vaccines. That's literally what they told me. And I found that for me, it was unethical to do all the vaccines. I knew too much. How could I, now I vaccinated my kids. I gave them the, all the vaccines, but how could I ethically and morally tell a, a, a parent, yeah, just do them all when I knew I wouldn't do that if I was in their shoes. Mm -hmm. So I've always gone by informed consent. And this is the challenge for some of us, some of your viewers, a lot of your viewers, I imagine, or listeners are aware that vaccines have risks but 90% or more of the population doesn't know that. So we have to help people go along this journey like most of us took, right? You started off by pointing out, I was a mainstream pediatrician. I literally thought vaccines were fine. They were <laughs> safe and effective. That's what I thought, which I'm embarrassed to, to, to admit that, but you know, we're indoctrinated. You, you hear it enough and you read it enough and you start believing it, which is why I'm worried about what's happening with COVID by the way. Anyway, Try to get a study published and it's near impossible. And then something fortuitous happened. The medical board's coming after my license. There, there's three open cases. And uh, some people reached out and said, we can help you do a quality assurance analysis. That was done last February, creating a data set. And then Jack said, I can help you get this data analyzed, IRB approved study. Let's see what we can do. And we teamed up and we put together this study and we have 570 some unvaccinated kids, 2,700 some partially variably vaccinated kids. And the beauty that people may not realize is Jack is completely blinded to who's who. He has never seen any identified data. So he's working with this blind data set. And in fact, Jack, you can speak to this in a bit if you wish. 
somewhat somewhere along the analysis, I'm going, Jack, you're, I think you're missing something. There's different age things. And he created a couple different, very brilliant ways of analyzing the data to age match for groups so that you wouldn't have these variables, confounding variables, messing up the data. So he was able to do blocking and some other high, high end statistics <laughs> that's over my head, but he was able to really make it match so that what we are seeing and I think it's on page 13 of our, of our study, the publication, if people uh, will have a link to that article, go to those graphs and mm -hmm. you will see it'll blow your mind. For almost everything we looked at, you've got a rising orange line of the more and more vaccines you get, the more frequently you see all these conditions from asthma to allergies to even ear infections, ADD, ADHD, anemia even, just a lot of different things. And the blue line that's almost flat along the bottom, guess who that is? It's the yeah. unvaccinated kids. Yeah. This is why this study is so important, right there. I've been saying I'm not seeing my, my unvaxxed kids are not sick. I mean, my, I have a sick and well waiting room and nobody's in my sick waiting room. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's gotten worse and worse or actually better and better, right? Yeah. If you're thinking as a business owner, it's not good to have <laughs> empty waiting rooms. So I'm thinking this is, this is not good business. I'm, I'm talking people out of vaccines, which is another paper we need to write because it costs a fortune as a pediatrician not to vaccinate. So I'm literally talking people into costing me money and then they're not sick. So my waiting rooms are empty. It's just not a good business move. Yeah. So you, I think though you're, what you will develop is a new business model that's ethical, a business model based on health. And the healthier your kids are, the better your clinic will will perform. So, I, yeah, I don't know how that's going to look, but wouldn't that be wonderful if if that's how it was? The healthier the the clients, the the better off you are. Oh, absolutely. I I can envision uh, a pediatrician who practices in the way that I do could take care of twenty thousand patients because. I mean, obviously I have a team, but, yeah. but we could easily take care of that volume because we're not doing sick care. We're doing wellness. We're doing uh, something occurred when you were talking at the beginning of the show uh, about uh, immunity, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, what keeps us healthy is a healthy immune system. And the interesting thing is that vaccines are actually harming the immune system as evidenced by the data in our study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it, I think what opens a lot of minds when I talk to people new to the idea um, that vaccines might cause more, much more harm than they're being told is that they are designed to alter the immune system in some way, in several ways. And the babies are exposed to it at the most critical stages of immune development and neurological development and you know every everything is still maturing and we have found out in the past 20 years just how very closely and intricately all those systems are combined what impacts the immune system impacts the brain we didn't know this you know at the turn of the last century when the concept of vaccine was brought on board but by gum we know it now and the whole theory of vaccination has not evolved to incorporate what we know now about immune skewing and the immune reaction um you know with the brain 
And, um, you know, with that, I see we're about the half hour mark and we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to learn some more amazing results from this study. You're listening to 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be right back. Did you know that in 1986, Congress passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, granting liability protection to drug companies for injuries and deaths caused by their vaccine products recommended to children? Did you know injuries and deaths of pregnant women and their unborn children were added to the act in 2016? Did you know that on February 4, 2020, drug companies who make COVID-19 vaccines were placed under the liability protection of the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, known as the PrEP Act? To learn the history of how we got here in order to protect yourself now and in the future, you must see the film, 1986, The Act. Go to 1986theact.com today. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy, but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Need information about your child's vaccinations? Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization of parents, family members, medical professionals, educators, and Washingtonians from all walks of life. They believe in personal freedoms and individual choices, including health care choices. Their mission is to advocate for vaccine policy reform based on scientific integrity and individual health needs, to promote education about healthy immunity, and to protect informed consent and medical freedom in Washington state. To stay informed, visit informedchoicewa.org. Informed Choice Washington envisions the future where every doctor is fully trained in identifying vaccine risk factors and recognizing vaccine injury. Every child is afforded a personalized approach to disease prevention, and every parent has the freedom to make the best healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. They know every child matters. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. Welcome back to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. And with me is Dr. James Lyons Weiler and Dr. Paul Thomas, authors of the brand new just released Vax versus Unvax study. If you're watching on YouTube, I just plunked a, 
a link directly to the study in the comments. And you can always find it at informedtoyswa.org, where we've got a full page feature on this study. Um, we're going to get into some of the details, some of the findings. But before we do that, for any listeners who are hearing and now sort of concerned about vaccines, but they're still very concerned um, about the dangers of the infections that these products target. I would like Dr. Paul I, to ask you this question. Um, is there any infection that a vaccine targets that you as a pediatrician don't feel confident helping a parent navigate their child through? No, uh, to answer in a nutshell, there, there are, um, what I do as far as helping parents make the, navigate the decisions with regards to vaccines is, uh, first of all, obviously you take the child's family history and risk factors, et cetera, and also the parent's preferences. But then you just look at each vaccine one by one and look at the risks and the benefits of the vaccine. Uh, in addition to taking the consideration of how prevalent is that illness and are there spe specific risk factors like strong family history of autoimmunity or autism, neurodevelopmental stuff. As an example, hepatitis B, that's the, well, let's start with pregnancy. There's two vaccines being pushed on pregnant women today that were never tested in pregnancy ever. Mm -hmm. So they are, they are totally experimental and yet they're being pushed as uh, almost, I mean, almost universally, parents are coming to me during their prenatal visits and talking about being really shamed if they weren't gonna take those vaccines. Don't you care about your child? Things like that, which is mm -hmm. just has no place in medicine the flu shot and the Tdap. So mm -hmm. we know the flu shot is highly ineffective and the Tdap is being pushed because of pertussis whooping cough. Well, how many babies are dying per year of whooping cough? About four in the mm -hmm. US. Mm -hmm. And that is out of about 4 million births. And we don't really know if that vaccine is gonna prevent those four cases or not, but that would be best case scenario because the vaccine is needing to recognize protactin protein on the outside membrane of the pertussis organism and 80% of pertussis these days in the US is protactin negative, mm -hmm. I'll bet that vaccine isn't doing much. So when you look at that risk, so pertussis is out there. There's over 20,000 cases a year in the US. How could that be when we have a massive vaccination program against pertussis? We get it during pregnancy, every pregnancy, two months, four months, six months, 18 months, four years, 10 years, every five to 10 years. I mean, everybody in this country is massively vaccinated, yet we still have 20,000 plus cases per year. Outbreaks in schools are generally occurring in fully vaccinated children. That vaccine simply isn't doing much, mm -hmm. but it's, you can't say it's doing nothing. That's the hard part. Mm -hmm. So I say to a parent, you know, which risk are you most comfortable with? Injecting a known neurotoxin and possibly triggering neurodevelopmental problems or taking that one in a million chance that your baby might get pertussis or might die of pertussis. And it becomes their choice, right? And mm -hmm. I'm just giving my best guess at these odds because we don't have good data, right? Our study with the vaxxed unvaxxed that we're presenting here today is just the first of its kind. We need massive, large studies of this kind. And the data is sitting in the databases. You can't tell me that the big systems like Kaiser and all the health plans that have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that there aren't some unvaxxed people in those data sets. They're there. All they have to do is just match them and they can figure out that 
yeah. you know, probably we're absolutely fine. I kind of went long-winded on you and didn't totally answer your question, but I just <laughs> took one example. At birth, there's hepatitis B. You catch that from sex and IV drug use. Babies don't do that. Babies aren't mm -hmm. having sex. They're not sharing dirty needles. As long as birth mother does not have hepatitis B, there is zero risk to not giving that vaccine. So yeah. I just take it like that one by one by one. One by one. That's, and that's fantastic. And, you know, one of the problems um, with the vaccine industry, it's so lucrative. There's no focus at all on treatments for anything once they invent a um, vaccine for it. But that doesn't mean that really good practitioners from MDs to NDs do not have on the shelf ready to go remedies, nutrient or nutrient drug as necessary to safely navigate your child through um, one of these vaccine targeted infections should they happen to catch it. So it's not like you're just abandoning your child to something. And, you know, and if your child comes through it, they'll have some natural immunity, which is always more vigorous and broad and um, broadly protective than um, anything that came in the needle. Okay, that said, that's just to try to get, show people that there is a whole other paradigm out there. Jack, um, could you list for us the key um, findings, the health findings that you saw the more vaccines a child was exposed to, the more the incidence of these certain um, issues. Yeah, that's an important question because for people to understand the study, they have to take all of the results into account. When you do a study like this, oftentimes the raw um, vaccinated versus unvaccinated will have some demographic or clinical differences. And classically, those have been addressed by uh, people doing vaccine safety studies by doing statistical adjustments. And that is the route by which they would get into manipulating the results until they found a particular study design or a design of analysis more specifically by which they found no association remaining. And that's what the CDC did with the DiStefano et al. study that's what uh, Verstraten et al. did with the, with, with the Verstraten et al. study and many of the studies. I've read all the autism studies. Um, and, and if you do that, it's called results peaking and it's called p-hacking. And it's not legitimate science. It's extremely um, dangerous. In fact, um, John Yanides from Stanford University said for these kinds of observational studies, I can give you any result you want just by changing the design of analysis. And that's why in my hands, where I, at the University of Pittsburgh, designed and conducted over 100 research studies, I was entrusted with studies from so many different medical and clinical biomedical departments, uh, biological, the Department of Biological Sciences, to design a study that was designed objectively so, regardless of what the result was, we went forward. If there was no result, we showed the clinician there's no result. And I never had anybody come back to me and say, well, why don't you change your study design and do this? And why don't you change the group this way and that way? And so uh, and, and had I done that, I would have said, sorry, we don't do that. We've already accommodated that. But nevertheless, you have to read the study from the, and track the results that, that show up to be particularly robust, regardless of how you slice and dice the data, let's call it that, okay? okay? So what we did, what Paul was talking about earlier was, there's an age difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated because of differences in trends of vaccination. The younger tend to be unvaccinated. 
they also tend to be on vax because of non because of vaccine hesitancy they call it or vaccine risk awareness we call it uh, in the parents uh, the young tend to be less vaccinated over time, but they also have let fewer vaccines. They're just younger. They have fewer vaccines. So it's totally possible to get a correlation between the number of vaccinations and the number of office visits simply due to age. And so you have to take into consideration age. We did this in a way that actually is a little bit more direct. We looked at the days of care, the specific matching pr uh, protocol that I used was to find out of the 561 vaccinated children, find someone, I'm oh, sorry, 561 unvaccinated children, find someone who has the has been in the practice just as long, the same number of days of care. And then in doing that, we had 561 who were vaccinated. So that's called matching where you, you can do this with smokers on say, number of pack packs per week or something like that you can you, you know if you're doing a cancer and smoking type thing you have to match for age match for you know these variables rather than just adjusting the overall study design we, we did matching and we did blocking you can block on family history you can block on age oldest you know 10 percent, 30 percent, whatever and when we do that the results that you really want to get excited about in terms of hey there's probably a real signal here uh are you know um, things like uh, gastroenteritis, okay, that, that was very strong. It wouldn't go away. The weight eating disorders. Uh, anemia was the strongest one. And no one in any vaccine study had seen or reported, to my knowledge, that anemia, the lack of viable blood, red blood cells in your patients may explain a lot of this. You know, you have to have oxygen to all of your tissues to do things like properly develop your brain and your immune system and properly develop, you know, a, a, a healthy body. So mm -hmm. if we're giving our children anemia due to vaccination, we need to know why. And it makes a great deal of sense why anemia might result. My hypothesis that emerged from this is that the aluminum in the vaccines take the place of the iron, the dietary iron, and the aluminum is actually grabbed by the molecule called transferrin. Aluminum is put into the long bones of the body where red blood cells are made instead of the uh, iron. And we simply are not producing enough red blood cells. Guess which study out of all the studies that you know of, I got that idea from. I got that from the Mitka study. Oh, they yeah. cited that. <laughs> Right. But they never yeah. reported anemia. They talked about one of the possible things that could mm -hmm. happen if you put aluminum into children is you could cause anemia. Anemia is robust and it's strong and it has the highest risk uh, overall. But if you look at the, 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 the papers open access because the, pub, the public paid for the science, they paid for the open access publication fee. Um, there's just, re, you know, result after result. There, there, there's condition after condition that remains strong. So in a way, the study is sort of a sensitivity analysis. Now, um, if you block by family history, you see a very strong result uh, where you see a consistent increase relative in incidence of uh, in risk of office visit within the uh, family history block. But one of the other things that Paul insisted that we do, and this is to his credit as both a physician and a scientist, he, he said, Jack, I have all the diagnoses of people that came down with the vaccine-preventable diagnoses. Not the vaccine-preventable diseases, but the vaccine-preventable diagnoses. We have to analyze that because what if the unvaccinated are getting all these childhood conditions 
like hepatitis A and hepatitis B, mumps, you know, rubella, rotavirus, and so on. And so if you look at the paper, you'll see table seven is for the full cohort that we analyzed. Um, there's practically no childhood illnesses um, like measles. There was no cases in the vaccinated or unvaccinated in, 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 this, in, the, in the cohort. And, but there are a few, and there's a few more in the unvaccinated, um, like uh, varicella, the chicken pox, uh, rotavirus, there was a couple of cases. And um, yeah, pertussis, there was a couple. And so there's an there's a statistically significant. Now, one of the detractors, one of my online detractors, I haven't heard anything official from anybody with letters behind your name, uh, grabbed me on social media and said, hey, you dumb <laughs> explicative. All you and Paul did was show that vaccines work. Look at table seven. And I mm -hmm. said, you're going to ignore every other figure in table. And you're going to mm -hmm. say, my, my, my study's crap. Paul, our study is absolute garbage. But then you're going to cite a result from the study. It's valid. That's called cherry picking. You can't. You either take the results <laughs> yeah. for the whole paper. Well, I mean, yeah. there could be a problem or something. And certainly, right. you know, we hope that there's not any. But well, the, the, it, the key to understanding this is to look at which results have the high above 2.0, about re relatively speaking, ratio mm -hmm. across all the tables. And when you find that, then you go, OK, that, that that's a significant uh that's a significant possibility. Right. And, you know, one of the reasons I started this half hour with was asking Dr. Paul about, is there any vaccine targeted infection you can't treat? And he said, no, was just this very reason, because parents need to know that, yes, sometimes the, um, and in many circumstances, a vaccine will suppress your symptoms to an infection, but what is the trade-off? And in the case of pertussis, um, there might be some young children who, you know, do come down with pertussis, but any immune, um, you know, protection that is afforded by that full experience, which can be very alarming. You do, you know, want to consult a, a trusted professional if your child is going yeah. through this, but that immune protection is um, much better uh, than if you had gotten your first exposure to whooping cough through that vaccine, because that cherry study shows that if your first experience with pertussis is from that vaccine, you never for the rest of your life can develop immunity toward pertussis. It makes you a lifelong customer to maybe have lesser symptoms for a few months. You know, and that's very important because pertussis, the vaccines that I'm familiar with, they all contain aluminum. And out of love for your grandchild, out of love for your child, out of uh, love for your siblings and so on, the newborns, if you take pertussis vaccine over and over and over again, you're putting aluminum into your body. And we have this explosion of Alzheimer's. And yes, aluminum crosses the blood-brain barrier. There's online discussions by non-professionals claiming to cite some evidence that there's a blood-brain barrier that aluminum molecules can't cross magically. And yet, I, I always remind them in 1985, we knew that amyloid, the very gunk that gunks up our brain with it, uh, with uh, uh, aluminum, uh, I'm sorry, with uh, Alzheimer's and autism, people mm -hmm. don't know that there's amyloid in the in the autism brain, is part aluminum itself. So if yeah. it can't get, you can cite all the Chris Exley studies and all the other studies, but if it, you can't explain Alzheimer's without aluminum, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Right. And yep. they I've say got that... some input to add on the vaccines for the diseases. Yes. The diseases for which we have vaccines. Yes. 
I don't know if Jack, if I've told you this, but the two cases of rotavirus that we had, uh, those were the those were two hospitalizations in unvaccinated uh, infants. They caught their rotavirus from a neighbor who was fully vaccinated against rotavirus and was shedding the vi the live virus. The other fact is that in this entire data set, vaccine and unvaccinated, nobody got the rotavirus vaccine, zero. None of the vaccinated patients got the rotavirus vaccine. And of course, none of the unvaxxed got any vaccines. So this was, just a yeah. little, this was just a little blip. Uh, it, it, yeah. and so in that table, actually, make, Paul, it should say not applicable then to the- Yeah, that really should say not applicable. Vaccinated, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the measles issue is worth talking about because people are so afraid of measles. And, and let's face it, I mean, measles can be fatal, right? So it's not like, I'm not just sort of sweeping it off as it's not important. Uh, the death rate's probably more like one in 10,000 or maybe one in 20,000, not what's quoted at the CDC of one in a thousand. However, we haven't had a death in the US in a child for over a decade. We had a massive measles outbreak in the Portland, Vancouver area here. So just recently that affected this data set. And yet we had zero cases of measles in vaxxed or unvaxxed. So that says something to the fact that an unvaccinated child's immune system is probably very robust. And that's actually scientifically uh, known to be the case. This explains why all our data shows less infections of any kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that's was... true. Another thing to say is that you have far less autism than the national average as well. Overall, higher Jack, we're having um, a little bit of trouble hearing you. Um, so I'm going to give it a little bit and just see if your connection clears up. Sure. You want... Okay. Oh, now you're better. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So people need to read the study from, from, from cover to cover to really understand quality of the uh, practice that you have. You have far less autism than the national average, for instance. You have far overall infections of any kind. And, but I did want to point out the last incidence that I did want to say was elevated was respiratory illnesses. Respiratory illnesses, respiratory infections were elevated in the vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated. And that's yeah. a concern in COVID that fits with the other science that shows that vaccinations may increase your risk of respiratory illness. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we're getting uh, a little low on time here, but we still have, you know, probably a good four minutes anyway. So this is just the beginning. I encourage people to go read this first one and, and look at the data, discuss it, share it with everybody, especially your pediatrician. But you're going to move on to phase two. Can you tell us what phase two is about? Absolutely. So my end of phase two, Paul has one too, so I'll try to keep it quick. My end of phase two is to go back at the data again, because there was some subgroup analysis we simply couldn't fit into this study. The peer reviewers were asking for it. They said, we need to do live virus versus non-live virus vaccination and see which of those groups has worse outcome. We need to do combined vaccines in one day versus not. That might be tough since Paul is really careful about that. Mm -hmm. but it might happen. And we need to look at aluminum containing versus non-aluminum containing vaccines to see if there's something special about the aluminum containing vaccines that make them uh, causally, potentially causally associated with certain outcomes. And then finally, one reviewer, every time the paper went back, it was a grueling peer review. 
This was not an easy pass. This is a, this journal is a serious journal, a serious academic journal. And then we had to pass the academic editor. Remember that, Paul? Mm. So they, they, they really put us through the gauntlet. Uh, they insisted that we really look at temporal correlation of individual vaccines and individual outcomes. That was beyond the scope of what we proposed in this original analysis, but we need to fund these activities for mm -hmm. the next 12 months. It, imagine 12 more months of analysis for three more subgroups. That's probably, I'm estimating nine months plus another uh, three months to write it up. You've got to go to ipaknowledge.org if you want to see this science continue. You have to go and become a monthly donor. If you can donate a dollar, I know COVID is hurting everybody's finances. Donate $2, 5 whatever. Um, One-time donations are certainly welcome as well. But the strongest thing that you can do to make this science happen is go to ipaknowledge.org. This is the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. We'll put it on the YouTube comments. We have to get these subgroup analyses done. And uh, I want to thank everybody from the bottom of my heart who did donate, uh, especially you, Bernadette. You did such a great job heading up your end of what you wanted to do to get the public excited about this. And Gretchen Fagan and everybody who you know organized, great job. Let's do it again. Let's get another bolus of funding going to get this second spate done and we'll get it done. You bet. You bet. And Dr. Paul, um, last word with you. Besides this work you're doing with Jack on that data, you've got another uh, prospectus study, right? That um, prospective yeah. study. Tell us about yeah. that. Uh, Pediatric Health Outcomes Initiative is a nonprofit. It's FOI, P-H-O, initiative, uh, .org. That's a, a nonprofit you can donate to to fund a massive study. We need to raise $4 million to fund this. It's 18 years follow-up on 5,000 newborns that we are actively enrolling in three different clinics right now. We need to bring on a couple more clinics. It takes money to do all of this. And I've just been volunteering all my efforts uh, for that project. There's, I'm not taking any money. Every dollar goes towards the project. So that's one exciting thing because, you know, what we're doing, Jack and I is retrospective. This is going to generate a prospective data set that should absolutely answer the question because part of the design is to have at least a thousand unvaccinated kids, a thousand partially vaccinated and a thousand fully vaccinated. And then it creates a de-identified data set that the world can access. And it's just a massive undertaking that needs support. But the other exciting piece that Jack and I will hopefully do with- We got uh, like 20 seconds. Oh, all right. Okay. We're just gonna look at a bigger data set that has all the other people in my practice. Okay. So uh, we look forward to doing that as well. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Paul Thomas and Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. You guys are my heroes. Um, we will put uh, information in the comments so that everybody can go look up uh, the study and donate if they can and, and share the word. Um, thank you for joining me. Uh, check everything out and have a great weekend. I'm all turned around with this holiday being here. You've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, 
inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org.